Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the British, British Elections Podcast with me, Tim Smith. A reminder that this is the second of two introductory podcasts. The main series itself is going to be on elections in the 1950s, starting with the 1950 election itself, the first election of the 1950s. But before I get going with that, I need to explain a little bit more about what happened before to put things into context to allow the narrative to run much more freely. Um, So in the last episode, I discussed the collapse of the conservative hegemony of the 1930s, which left that party distracted, distrusted and heavily associated in the public's mind with high unemployment, inequality and economic failure. This episode is going to turn to the other party, the other major party in the British system, the Labour Party, is going to discuss the first government of Clement Attlee, um, the government which swept to power on a wave of popularity at the 1945 election. We're going to look at the achievements and the difficulties of this new government. We're going to look at what it faced as it grappled to rebuild the country, which had been exhausted by six years of total war. Um, It's really difficult. It's really difficult not to stress how much uh, material one could cover in an episode on this government. The Attlee government did all manner of things. But what I'm going to try to do is rather than be completely comprehensive, Uh, I'm going to try to focus on the areas that are going to become live wires at the forthcoming election of 1950. So the purpose of this episode is to set things up for the 1950 election, so that when we discuss the issues, what the um, campaign was all about, uh, it will all make sense and to put things into context. Uh, The final thing I'm going to do in the episode is to have a look at the dollar crisis and the devaluation of 1949. Um, There was one of the key problems of the 1950 election was the so-called dollar shortage. Um, That's going to be absolutely integral in the discussion at the 1950 election in both the major parties' manifestos. So we need to unpack that topic in full. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So, I'm going to start by making a statement which may be controversial to some people, but the Attlee government, I would argue, is was the most radical left-wing government that we've ever had in the UK. Now, some people described it as an attempt to remake the UK from a capitalist country into a democratic socialist commonwealth. Others describe it as a radical reforming social democratic government. So what's the difference? I think one of the things we need to do before we get to the 1950 election is to discuss the difference between socialism and social democracy. The term socialism, and it still is, an extremely loaded term with the right-wing press using it as a term of abuse for the Labour Party, rather like in the same way that uh, the left uh, use the term Tory as a synonym, but with a slightly pejorative, of the Conservatives. Now, if you read the newspapers in, at the 1950 election, um, for example, the Daily Express, which was perhaps l- the Labour government's bitterest opponent, um, they keep talking about, um, the. they never refer to the party as Labour. They always refer to it as the Socialists or the Socialist Party with a capital S. 
and um, with all the doctrines and the left-wing cabals and propaganda leaflets, it the, the the Express makes it sound like a sort of group with all the um, fanaticism of ISIS, um, but with some of the incompetence of Yes Minister. Um, so um, we need to discuss what we actually mean by socialist. So in terms of the underlying political philosophy, there's really no agreed definition of what makes a social democrat different from a democratic socialist. So what I want to do is just um, put my own approach, and not because I think I'm right, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer for this, but I think it, it basically it will just give you an idea of, of what the hell I'm on about. So my own preferred approach is that the socialist doctrine dictates that the the socialist wants to replace capitalist, basically replace capitalism with some form of collectivist system. Whereas the, the difference there with the social democrat is that the social democrat wants to manage capitalism rather than replace capitalism. They believe in a mixed economy. In a social democrat economy, some in industries will be nationalized, but it will also come with a large private sector. Under social, demo uh, social democracies, um, inequalities could be somewhat evened out with heavy progressive taxation, a taxation on high incomes and wealth. But there aren't. But the the idea of a, in a social democratic, you don't always remove, you don't always um, completely level things out. So if we have a look at the Labour government of 1945 to 1950, the personnel, the cabinet, um, was very much a coalition of people with different views the archetypal the archetypal social democrats in this period were herbert morrison who was the deputy leader uh, ernest bevin who was the foreign secretary he'd previously been a trade union leader and hugh gateskill who later became chancellor and then eventually leader of the labor party but the labor party also contained many outright socialists um democratic socialists such as anirin bevin and perhaps what you might say is that uh, there was a third group, perhaps, uh, in the middle, who might have been socialist in their heart, um, but were social democrats in their head, albeit a rather left-wing version of that doctrine. Um, if you want to have a look at um, the what, what you might call as um, socialists and social democrats, um, in more contemporary period, the sort of archetypal uh, democratic socialists on the left would be somebody like Tony Benn in the 1970s to the 1990s, and then perhaps Jeremy Corbyn in the 2010s. Whereas the the sort of textbook example of of, of social democrats uh, would be perhaps Dennis Healy, the Chancellor, the Labour Chancellor in the nineteen seventies, and also Gordon Brown, um, albeit a much more moderate version, but but very much a textbook social democrat, um, who Gordon Brown being the Chancellor under Tony Blair's government and then Prime Minister in his own right. So this is my personal preference for understanding the differences in ideology. Um, some people who are, I would regard, as social democrats may refer to themselves as democratic socialists. But I use this for um, to, make, to make it clear what I'm talking about. So at this point, it's, uh, we're going to move on to what the government actually did. 
1945 to 1950 government was rather unusual in British history because it came to power with an enormously detailed manifesto. Um, the Labour Party made a um, a long list of a long agenda with a long list of things that it intended to do, and it pretty much managed to implement it in full, which is some something unusual uh, in British politics. The thing that was top of the agenda and is going to come back at the nineteen fifty election is nationalisation. So this was a f initially um, not very controversial because the government picked off some low-hanging fruit. But then as, the, uh, as we go down the list, the, um, the opposition to nationalisation starts to pick up and um, things start to go wrong. So they started with the government taking over the Bank of England. Uh, this had been previously owned by a cartel of banks. Um, and so was not particularly controversial. Uh, they also took over the coal mines. Again, um, there had been an extremely poisonous relationship between the coal um, mine owners and the miners' union. Uh, they took over cable and wireless, and in 1947 they took the railways into uh, public ownership. Um, the railways prior to 1947 were a cartel of the four, uh, so-called Big Four, um, and they were pretty much in dire straits after after six years of war. So initially, uh, the Conservatives' um, opposition in the House of Commons was pretty pathetic. Um, Churchill was in a sulk, having lost the election unexpectedly. Um, and the opposition tended to focus on petty-fogging details rather than uh, mounting any serious opposition to some of the early plans. It's worth looking at the nationalisation in a bit more details because um, I deliberately talked about the difference between socialism and social democracy and I did that purposefully because the person in the driving seat for the nationalisation programme was Herbert Morrison, the much more moderate social democrat. And the way he did it was on the so-called public board approach. He uh, regarded uh, the uh, he had um, been the chairman of the London County Council in the nineteen thirties, and had been, of course, responsible for the nationalised London Transport Passenger Board, known as London Transport. Um, the historian Kenneth Morgan writes that the London Transport experience offered a prototype of efficient public management free from political interference and from dictation from trade unions or other vested interests. Furthermore, he writes, the main unions had no wish to replace the public boards with any, firm, with any form of industrial democracy, let alone worker control. End quote. Morgan adds that though there was some criticism at the time uh, in the cabinet from some left-wing members, such as Bevan and Emmanuel Shinwell, who wanted much more consultation with workers, it was clear that the moderate Morrison was going to be in the driving seat. So it's interesting that later social socialist critics of the so-called Morrisonian nationalisation um, regarded this as a form of state capitalism. So the 1970s and the 1980s socialist critique from people like Tony Benn um, was that the nationalised industries should move to a system of industrial democracy and worker control. 
And that came back in the 2010s with the Corbyn-era Labour Party publishing um, some pretty radical policy papers, although I defy you to find those documents in the Starmer Party now, however hard you search. But the Corbyn-era Labour Party called for nationalised industries to be um, for uh, in the benefit of a number of different um, interest groups, so workers, but then also a, a number of different sections, such as the elderly, students, uh, disabled people, LGBTQ, etc. So, um, but Morrison had no intention of anything like that. Morrison's idea was to uh, have the uh, nationalised industries run on a much more efficient basis in the public interest. Towards the end of uh, the Parliament, things got much more controversial. Uh, the government attempted to nationalise the iron and steel industry. Now, these had been uh, these are another sort of regulated industry that had been in a form of a sort of state-directed cartel. Uh, but unlike the coal industry, there was much less um, support uh, in the country. And sensing that this was more uh, controversial, the the Tory-dominated House of Lords, which had been fairly quiet. Um, in the earlier period regarding nationalisation, um, decided to try to block the legislation um, as the Parliament was coming towards an end. Uh, a compromise was reached whereby the legislation was passed, but it would not come into force until after the election, giving the new government the opportunity to repeal it. And thus, the fact that the uh, there was an uh, an option to change the policy meant that this is uh, the first issue that we've come to that's actually going to be a live issue in 1950. The rest of the nationalisations, the Conservatives pretty much decided that they would accept as settled, and so they would leave things as is. So moving on to the next topic of workers' rights. The government really didn't favour syndicalism or industrial democracy, where unions or groups of workers would run things. But the government was of the trade unions, um, if perhaps not by the trade unions, with uh, people like uh, Ernest Bevan, who'd been the leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, uh, holding such a senior position as Foreign Secretary. Now, one of the key priorities was to remove the Industrial Relations Act of 1927. Now, this was a, a very unpopular piece of legislation uh, with trade unionists. It had severely uh, restricted trade union rights in the wake of the failed general strike of the previous year. And that was one of the first things to go. The government decided to repeal it as quickly as possible, and it went in 1946. But the government was not very keen on unofficial strikes, whereby hotheads on the trade union floor um, decided that they were, wanted to call strikes on their own without consulting their leaders. And so when in the later 40s uh, dock workers started to call these so-called wildcat strikes, uh, the government came down very hard on them. The government did have a very good relationship with the moderate TUC leadership. Uh, the union leadership after the war was extremely moderate, uh, un in, at least in comparison to the sort of horror stories that you get in the 1970s. And um, there was a voluntary pay policy started to emerge, whereby unions agreed not to overdo it in their pay negotiations with the private sector. 
Uh, this was very unusual. This is the only time, really, where the government managed to hold down pay with a sort of um, friendly deal with the unions. The, other, the government's other priority on the subject of the labour market was full employment. Um, one thing that the government would never accept was to go back to the policies of the 1920s and 1930s, um, which I outlined in the previous episode, where unemployment had rocketed uh, to 20% plus. The government hoped to uh, maintain as full employment as they could. They adopted Keynesian uh, demand management, um, and um, they also had a little bit of luck in the sense that the US economy boomed after the 1945 uh, end to war, um, unlike what had happened in uh, after the end of the First World War. And it wasn't actually until 1949 uh, that the, the US got into any economic trouble. So the government had a reasonably decent start. Um, there was a slight pickup to unemployment after the full employment of the war, with it rising to just 3% in 1947. But uh, after that, the rate of unemployment fell back to basically one and a half to two percent for the remainder of Labour's time in office. So whether they were lucky, uh, however you um, want to, uh, however you want to judge it, um, the government did certainly preside over a time with extremely low levels of unemployment uh, by historic standards, and especially in comparison to the 1920s and the 1930s. Now, um, immediate criticism of this um, is that the, uh, if you like, the elephant in the room is that the government received billions of dollars of martial aid, and we'll say more of that later. So they, the government did have some, um, some advantages there. And secondly, the government uh, undoubtedly uh, overmanned some of the nationalised industries, uh, particularly on the, the, the railway industry. Um, they were quite keen um, to keep as many people as they could in work. Um, the government also occasionally wasted money with some schemes, um, although <coughs> compared to some of the mistakes that were arguably made in the COVID era, uh, some of the mistakes such as the infamous ground nuts scheme seemed to sort of pale in comparison but if you at the time of the 1950 election the government uh, had wasted millions of pounds on a scheme to produce nuts in the east african colonies uh, which was a complete and utter failure and that was something that the uh, conservative opposition was going to make hay with at the 1950 election next up health uh, if you'll forgive the cliché, the iconic moment of the Labour government uh, came in no July 1948 when the National Health Service was officially launched. Prior to the war, the health system was a mixed system of private, charitable or local authority funded healthcare. And actually, paradoxically, given his reputation of one of uh, as you know Labour's bogeymen in the nineteen um, twenties uh, and nineteen thirties period, um, one of the Conservatives who did quite a lot to improve the health system was none other than Neville Chamberlain. Uh, he moved. Um, he made some decent improvements. However, um, by the time of the nineteen forty five election. 
Um, if you have listened to Vernon Bogdanor in his uh, Gresham lectures, one of the uh, key points he makes about some of the problems with health is that they were facing financial collapse due to the costs and the strains of war. Quite a lot was uh, funded uh, voluntary by generous philanthropists, but obviously with people being taxed at 19 shillings and sixpence, they didn't have as much money to uh, support the system. Um, and the local authorities had enormous problems with housing, and so there just simply wasn't enough money. So the system needed a radical overhaul, whoever had won. So the person in the driving seat for the nationalisation of the health service was not Herbert Morrison, but the radical health secretary in Myron Bevan. Um, he got going on uh, plans for the NHS as early as 1945, but it actually took until 1948 even before the plans were ready to present to the House of uh, Commons. Um, Attlee's recent biographer, uh, Michael Jago claims that uh, Morrison was actually um, opposed to Bevan enough um, to try and stymie parts of the plans. Um, some of it perhaps on a personal level, because uh, he was not keen on the thought of Bevan gaining kudos on it, and perhaps partly on ideological grounds. Um, but um, the general feeling is, uh, and this is also supported by Bevan's uh, bio re recent biographer, um, Nick Thomas Simmons, is that um, Bevan's big supporter in the cabinet was none other than Attlee. Um, Attlee was often quite quiet and, um, and, and was the sort of person who would seem like a sort of calm chairman. But on this one... Um, uh, despite the fact that um, Iron Bevan was some, somewhat to the left, um, he had very much had the support of the Prime Minister. Uh, what he didn't have any support from was from the British Medical Association, um, which is really, to those uh, living outside the UK, the British Medical Association is really a equivalent to a trade union and regulator rolled into one. Uh, amongst uh, doctors. And despite some quite uh, serious compromises and financial inducements from uh, Bevan, um, they were bitterly opposed to the legislation when it came to the Commons in 1948. And perhaps the most uh, dangerous individual was the so-called radio doctor, Dr Charles Hill. Uh, he was the first sort of celebrity uh, media doctor who would go on to what was then called the home service and uh, give people medical advice. And this was uh, particularly consequential for the 1950 election as uh, Dr Hill um, got going uh, with the Conservative Party and became a major player in their election campaign. On the other side of the coin... The Conservative Party adopting Dr Charles Hill also connected them with some of the most bitter opposition to the foundation of the NHS, and thus it was a bit of a double-edged sword. The key thing that's going to come back to, to bite at the 1950 election is what Bevan said on the night before the, uh, the NHS launched in July uh, 1948. He made his so-called vermin speech. 
uh, in which his frustrations over the opposition to the National Health Service, um, well, as some people put it, appeared to boil over. And he recalled his experience of poverty in South Wales and the suggestion that he emigrate. So to read the quote, um, he said, um, this is why no amount of cajolery and no attempts at ethical or social seduction can eradicate from my heart a deep burning hatred for the Tory party that inflicted these bitter experiences upon me. So as far as I am concerned, they are lower than vermin. They condemned millions of first-class people to semi-starvation, end quote. Bevan's biographer, Nick Thomas Simmons, now himself a Labour frontbencher as of uh, the beginning of 2024, uh, he doubts that this was just an angry outburst. Uh, he doesn't think that um, that uh, Bevan would just have a have a have a have a bit of a bit of a rage and uh, and would mouth off. That actually um, Bevan was somebody who would prepare his speeches. That he would um, prepare very carefully and choose his words. Uh, he thinks that he uh, believed uh, that deeply and was really uh, keen to um, get language out there. Now, as we're going to find out, there was a consequence to this. Uh, Bevan is going to become the bête noire of the uh, Conservative opposition at the next election. And as I said in the opening episode, if you think that um, snowflakery, uh, outrage buses and council culture are all new things, then think again. Um, the Conservative opponents were already queuing up to take a ride on the proverbial outrage bus. Uh, they condemned Bevan for his intemperate language and the enormous hurt feelings caused. Uh, Churchill, though, uh, decided that he wouldn't get hurt. Um, when the uh, opposition go low, we like to go even lower. And um, he said that the new health secretary should clearly be the new first patient of his new health service, perhaps in a mental hospital. So, as uh, the fire and fury of the initial uh, launch of the National Health Service uh, went through, people began to get used to the new system, and the Conservatives, by the 1950 election, had actually come to accept it. Indeed, given that the beverage report um, was uh, done during the Conservative-led uh, war coalition, some within the Conservatives claimed that they had invented the National Health Service. So by the time of the 1950 election, the NHS itself um, was not a particularly controversial issue. And it's quite interesting that you, what you don't find is a kind of safe-in-our-hands moment from uh, Churchill it's kind of taken as a done deal. So I think it's worth just having a look at the ideology behind the establishment of the National Health Service. So although there was considerable social liberal, social democratic and perhaps even some one nation conservative support for the establishment of the National Health Service or at least a National Health Service of some sort uh, that was free at the point of use, Bevan was kind of keen to stress its more socialist credentials. One of the things that appealed to Bevan particularly was the fact it was so much of a class leveller. Members of all classes would be treated equally and they'd be treated together. 
and compare this to some of the other nationalisations. So, for example, in uh, Herbert Morrison's nationalised British Railways, you weren't, uh, everybody didn't sit together. They sat in not just two different classes, um, but in some uh, carriages, there were, in some trains, there were actually three classes of tickets as late um, as the uh, mid-1950s. Whereas um, in the National Health Service, there was no class of service. Everybody was uh, treated the same, regardless of wealth or background. And so there was a real bit of socialist levelling uh, that perhaps uh, there wasn't in some of the other nationalisations, or at least that it wasn't as, as, as quite as clear in some of the other nationalisations. So next up, I want to move on to foreign policy. In the, 19th, in the later, particularly the later 1950s, there's a real problem in the Labour Party between uh, the moderates and the democratic socialist left on the idea of foreign policy. In the uh, immediate post-war um, uh, Labour government, the moderates, however, are very much in the driving seat. So the Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, was extremely keen on the alliance with the United States, as was Attlee. Uh, they regarded it as fundamentally important of the threat of communism. And the numbers of people on the democratic socialist left who wanted the UK to adopt a more socialist foreign policy uh, were very much, uh, were very much uh, kept in their box. Um, what these people had in mind was a kind of middle way between capitalist America and the communist Eastern Bloc. Uh, they wanted more trading with the uh, communist countries and they wanted a, a looser a relationship with the United States, which some of them thought was a bit of a warmonger. Um, Kenneth Morgan, the, the, the Labour historian, um, estimates there were uh, of the about 390 Labour MPs, there were as many as perhaps 100 on the left who took that view, so perhaps about a quarter of the party. And some of the left-wing MPs, the obvious ones like Michael Foote, Richard Crossman and, 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 and Ian Mercado, and surprisingly Woodrow Wyatt, uh, who despite later on became an admirer of Mrs Thatcher, at that time was considered a left-wing troublemaker. And from time to time these uh, guys would embarrass the government uh, with the odd pamphlet or two, um, such as the infamous Keep Left pamphlet, which was sceptical uh, of the UK's po close post-war alliance with the US. Bevan, uh, the Foreign Secretary, firmly rejected any equivalence between the US and the Soviet Union. Uh, he was not going to say uh, that we're going to have any kind of m a midway between the two. Um, he was a keen advocate of the UK's close alliance with the US. And of course, the UK famously was an enthusiastic founder member of NATO. So Attlee, um, Bevan, um, Ernie Bevan, that is, and, and also Sir Stafford Cripps, um, who was the Chancellor from 1947, were all acutely concerned about the threat from the Soviet Union. Um, having seen the fate of democratic socialists and social democrats in the parties in, Eastern, in the Eastern Bloc, what had happened after the war was the Soviet occupying forces in countries like Hungary and Poland had called elections, um, but if they hadn't got their way uh, by the ballot box, they'd simply either emasculated the, the centre-left parties, forcing them to merge with communists and then purging them, 
uh, or they just simply ignored the results and uh, imposed the government that uh, uh, that, that they uh, wanted in the first place. So, it, ironically, Crips had actually been quite rel uh, relatively speaking friendly to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. And uh, he had such a good relationship that uh, Churchill sent him as the UK's ambassador to Moscow during the war. But there, whilst uh, having seen the workers' paradise uh, up front, he'd, he'd heard the screams, if you like. He'd experienced the reality um, and uh, had, took, despite being uh, certainly of the left, um, took a much uh, more strong view against uh, any kind of uh, rapprochement with the Soviet Union. So, um, far from Attlee and co. resisting a strong U US hand in Europe, as some of the extreme left of the party wanted to do, uh, they actively sought US participation. And actually, in the 1940s, despite the usual party games, there was something of a bipartisan uh, foreign policy, uh, really, with Attlee and, uh, and Ernie Bevin actually working with Churchill on how to manage its relationship with the new Truman administration, President Truman having taken over from Roosevelt when he died in 1945. Um, the UK occasionally deviated a little bit from the US's approach, but uh, not very much. It's more nuances. Uh, one example is the Palestine mandate, and second is the UK's early recognition of communist China. Um, the United Kingdom uh, recognised uh, the Communist Party's takeover in 1950, and that's something that the US didn't do until the 1970s. So that brings us on to colonialism and the a topic of withdrawal from India and some of the colonies. Now, uh, some of those are extremely controversial and, uh, frankly, um, uh, you, you could really do with a couple of episodes in their own right to talk about it. But since we're talking about what happened and what featured in the 1950 election, I'm really not going to, to dwell on them. Um, if you look at some of the stuff that's written in the manifestos, there's some platitudes about the Commonwealth. Um, but actually, the uh, although Churchill in the 1930s was a, a keen supporter of Britain's rule in India, um, once the UK had quit India, uh, he recognised the writing was on the wall, and it was a complete non-issue at the, either the 1950 election. The 1951 election is a little bit more complicated because of the uh, the uh, controversy with Persia and Iran, although that had not been a colony. But we'll come back to that when we get to 1951. So I'm going to um, just simply say that the, the British government uh, withdrew from India pretty much as quickly as it could. Um, Attlee had been keen on Indian independence and um, the what the Labour government was able to do uh, uh, in the run-up to the 1950 election was to say that the the Indian government and the new government in Pakistan um, would would very much uh, respect the Labour Party because they had been the ones to uh, to get on with it and and give independence. So they said that they thought that the newly independent nations would be keen keener to cooperate with the Labour government than a Tory one. And so to the economy. Um, the big controversies of the 1950 election came from the economy and economic policy. Uh, that's probably not something uh, particularly surprising, um, as Bill Clinton famously said, or maybe he didn't say, is the economy stupid? 
So in order to make sense of the economic and tax pledges that were made at the 1950 and also 1951 elections, we really have to have a bit of a deep dive in terms of what happened uh, during the 1940s uh, during, during the government. So there were two chancellors um, it, during the first Labour government. The first was Dr Hugh Dalton, and uh, he uh, took over in 1945, but then had to resign in late 1947 after accidentally leaking his own budget to the Evening Standard. Uh, he was then taken over by, uh, he was then uh, replaced by Sir Stafford Cripps, who <clears throat> was a little bit more careful and prudent. Um, both of whom were from the left of the party, but um, they were very different uh, character. Uh, they had very different characteristics. Um, Dalton was extremely flamboyant. Cripps was uh, austere and was actually a lay preacher. So um, the first thing to note of the Labour government is the, uh, and probably the thing uh, among, as well as the NHS is most famous for, is the extremely high levels of redistributive taxation. But actually, the irony is that it was the Conservatives that had actually raised the tax rates to some of these, um, what some people may see as crazy levels during World War Two. So all the party had to do was just not change anything. It just it, it just needed to keep the income tax levels at the extremely high rates that they inherited from Sir Kingsley Word and Sir John Anderson. So, um, as I think I said in the previous episode, uh, at the end of the war, the standard rate of income tax, which applied from income from about £150 up to the surtax threshold of £2,000 was 10 shillings or 50%. Now there was a little bit of, there were a couple of reduced rates and there was also a very small bit of uh, earned income, uh, earned income uh, relief, uh, so on wages and salaries. But generally speaking, most people, um, most people, most salary earners would pay income tax as a marginal rate of around forty-five percent. Um, anyone earning more than two thousand pounds, which is actually considerably more than it sounds, if you update that two thousand pounds with today's level of wages, it's more like two hundred thousand pounds, perhaps. Um, but there was a very fast increasing levels of surtax on top of the 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 forty five percent income tax, and um, on incomes above twenty thousand, um, the combined rates, and and there were very few reliefs, um, were hit a, a hit a high of nineteen shillings and sixpence. So anyone earning uh, more than around two million uh, a year in today's um, wages. Uh, would have to pay 97.5% of their additional income in tax. Um, the If you look at somebody earning around £40,000 a year, the, uh, the the amount of tax, so the effective tax rate, was around 90%. So if you took, took £40,000, uh, which then is a huge amount of money, £4 million, um, but nonetheless, uh, you pay 90% of that back to state. So um, 
there were some moderate tax cuts for well, one thing uh, people remember that Labour government for was extremely high levels of tax. But they did. The irony is that they did actually start to cut the levels of tax. Um, the standard rate came down uh, by um, one shilling, so it went from fifty to forty-five percent. Um, and there was an earned income allowance of a fifth on, uh, on a fifth of a fifth, basically on wages. So it took the marginal rate down to around 37.5%. So in fact, there was quite a decent um, tax cut for wage earners and salary earners, provided you didn't earn more than 2000 a year. Uh, corporations paid income tax, so there was no sort of separate um, version of company profits uh, taxes. There were some specific other specific taxes, but basically um, corporations were taxed under the income tax schedule, which is rather confusing. The excess profits taxes that were created were abolished in 1946. Um, but uh, Cripps also decided that he needed to um, target wealth um, and the top rate of death duty or what's now called inheritance tax, was increased up to 80% uh, by 1950. So um, when you could you could end up with extremely high levels of tax. Um, there was, <coughs> in 1948, when Cripps need, decided he needed to de deflate the economy, um, he did a unusual thing, which was called the special contribution which created a top tax rate of 147.5%, 29 shillings and sixpence in the 20 shillings pound. Now, you might think that I'm joking, but uh, I'm not. It was an extremely com complicated levy that basically on unearned income, if you, if you were unfortunate or fortunate, depending on the way you look at it, to uh, earn extremely high levels of unearned income, so dividends um, and savings, uh, then you had to pay uh, a, a super tax of 147.5%. Now, very few people actually paid that. The um, Manchester Guardian described it as an honest, though fierce, socialist redistribution of wealth, whilst the Financial Times described it as ominous. Now, what's quite a, a, an irony is, despite the fact that um, there was this um, special uh, contribution raid, um, perhaps maybe as much as a wealth tax of 1%, the, um, the, the, most of the newspapers actually thought that the, the, the wealthy had actually got off lightly, because what the, what the left of the Labour Party really wanted was an annual wealth tax of, say, 2 or 3% on, on extremely wealthy people. And despite the uh, extreme levels of that, a tax rate of 147.5%, um, it was considered actually quite moderate. So it's one of these sort of strange things that um, sometimes that if you, it depends on, 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 on how you look at it. That said, um, it was extremely easy to avoid. Um, if you didn't, if you if you were of the Leona Helmsley uh, mentality that the nineteen shillings and sixpence rate of income tax was for the little people, um, there were all manner of ways that you could avoid it. Incredibly, there were no uh, taxes on any kind of capital gains, and it was extremely easy to disguise income as capital gains. 
Um, there was extremely naive legislation uh, to stop you doing that on bonds, uh, so-called bond washing. Um, but it was easily outmaneuvered, and you could also disguise uh, so-called dividend stripping. You could um, turn dividends into capital gain. Um, so there were all manner of ways of, uh, of, of avoiding the tax. It's worth um, pointing out, I had a look at some of the uh, documents from the Inland Revenue and uh, the number of people who actually paid income tax at the top rate. Um, in the 1930s, then there were hundreds of people paid surtax on incomes of above £100,000 a year. Uh, by the early 50s, um, it's in one year, it's down to single figures. Um, frankly, nobody, um, unless you were extremely incompetent uh, or just excessively patriotic, um, very few people paid uh, those real uh, uh, rates of, uh, of tax. Um, the system uh, breathed through its loopholes. Um, Alan Clark, um, in his uh, history, um, says that Tory MPs seem to be extremely well, well aware of these manoeuvres, given the number of Rolls-Royce cars parked at the House of Commons garage. Um, the Labour Party was also willing to increase indirect taxation. And now sometimes that's sort of regressive, so some people don't like indirect taxation uh, because it, it can hit the, uh, the worst off more. Um, but actually the Labour government tended to target luxury and semi-luxury goods. So um, uh, the tax, uh, there was no VAT, it was um, instead purchase tax which came with a myriad of coloured stickers that you put on the products. Uh, rates of purchase tax could be as high as two-thirds, but it was levied on the manufacturer rather than the retailer. So a 66% tax is not as large because it's before the retailer markup. Um, so it can't be compared directly. And then on uh, the subject of the economy, the government also adopted a load of state planning. Um, now, this is actually something that is disputed, because if you compare, uh, compared to, to what uh, governments did, say, in the 1980s and 1990s, it looks like this post-war Labour government's extremely bossy. But it's, say if you compare it to a French government, or even a book, the comparatively laissez-faire German government, there is much more um, state direction or state-led or, or consensus-style industrial policy. So it depends, again, once again, it depends on how you look at, uh, how you look at things. And a lot of the bureaucracy um, was in some declining industries, like the obviously nationalising coal industries, and there's not, there doesn't seem to have been very much in emerging industries such as chemicals and consumer electronics. Um, what the government did do, which was unpopular, was to close the Liverpool Cotton Exchange and replace it with a state buying commission. Uh, the government also uh, went for bulk buying of imports. Um, they claimed that their heft as, a, if you like, a monopsonist, a sole buyer, could gain better deals from foreign exporters rather than um, cutting out the middleman, rather than leaving it to the private sector. There was also some uh, unpopularity over house building. Um, there was a genuine 
material, a labour shortage in the initial couple of years. Um, but after the, you know, when things really got going in the, the 1940s, the, the, there's a mixed, um, there's very much a mixed opinion on whether the, the, the Labour Party did a, did, a, did a good job on house building. By 1950, there were 200,000 uh, houses a year. But given the huge need for new homes, um, and there'd been virtually no house building during the war years, and of course there'd been a huge amount of destruction of, from the bombing raids and the rocket attacks, this was really high on the public's list of priorities. And it was also difficult if you were trying to be a private builder. Um, the Michael Jago, um, Atlee's biographer, notes the controversy see when Field Marshal Montgomery wanted a permission planning permission it was very difficult to get permission to 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 build your own houses or or to uh, renovations etc it was all it was all carefully um, carefully husbanded so moving on to uh, monetary policy um, the it remained completely locked down with uh, both Dalton and Cripps insisting on super low interest rates so this is this is a bit peculiar that the the unlike in pretty much any other period, the monetary policy basically remained with super low interest rates. Um, people, the, the banks were directed uh, into what they could lend, and um, their interest rates were extremely low. Um, one of the most unpopular was the the infamous two percent Dalton bonds issued in nineteen forty six. Uh, these were supposed to these were supposed to be callable a par after twenty twenty years, um, but with their very low coupon at two percent, uh, when interest rates rose in the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties, uh, they became extremely extremely low uh, value. They 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 traded something like at twenty uh, percent of par at some of their at some of their worst levels. Um, the Financial Times actually accused uh, Hugh Dalton, the Chancellor of Suasion, basically forcing banks and finance houses to buy these bonds. And uh, a maverick Tory um, backbencher called uh, for Dalton to be surcharged. On the other side of the, if you like, the tax spend ledger was a big increase in welfare spending. Uh, some of it was uncontroversial, so um, the Beveridge Report had, had agreed that there'd be a new system of universal benefits. The Conservatives were, were certainly not opposed to a more generous benefit system and a more generous retirement pension. But uh, there was a bit of a flaw in the system. There was no automatic price indexation of pensions and benefits, and that meant that periodically governments were forced to make ad hoc increases. The other big area where spending uh, rocketed, and, and this really did rocket, um, was food subsidies. So these had been introduced, as I said in the previous, in, uh, in the previous episode, as a, as a wartime necessity. But the government increased them after the war. Initially, it was a mix of redistribution to help people on lower incomes, and also as a method of disinflation to keep the price level down because the government didn't want post-war um, post inflation. But unfortunately, the costs of this completely ballooned. So in 1945-46, what had started at something like 20 or 40 million in 1940 had gone up to 265 million. And by 1948, it had ballooned to 485 million. 
which is around 20% of government spending. So an enormous problem and um, something that the government was going to have, whichever party won the 1950 election, was going to have to make some serious, um, serious changes to. So that perhaps moves us on to the defining issue of the 1950 election and the big elephant in the room, which was rationing. Um, during the war, the US, the UK had been cut off from the continent and any uh, supplies from the US and North America were being sunk by submarines. And so practically everybody uh, accepted the necessity and fairness of rationing, particularly on, on consumer staples and also limiting the imports of perhaps unnecessary luxuries. But unlike the lighter World War I rationing, which sort of ended immediately after the war, this round of rationing went on and on. And in fact, it wasn't until 1954 before the ration books were finally tossed on the bonfire. So one of the amusing things about um, people's histories, you often get rose-tinted memories that people never ate so well when things were being uh, rationed. Um, but if you believe that, frankly, I, I've got a bridge to sell you. What I would concede is that people ate very well after the war because of the huge amount of food subsidies. But it, it was almost certainly not because of the actual um, uh, rationing and certainly not the taste of the food. So if you'll excuse a little bit of um, mischief, I can't help thinking that some of the demand control was making um, was done basically by making the food as disgusting as possible. So one of the one of the surprising things about World War Two is that bread, um, despite the fact that um, most grain is imported in, into the UK, um, was not rationed during the war, but. In order to make a, scale, a very scarce supply of grain go further, the state first outlawed white bread, and then it insisted that all bread had to be produced to a new standard, which is the so-called national loaf. So the flour for the bread was extremely it had a high, extremely high extraction rate, which means as a huge amount of the grain was used uh, as possible. Uh, but it meant an awful lot of meal went into the mixture. In order to make it more palatable to the public, who were used to white bread, it was bleached with something called nitrogen trichloride. Now, I have no idea what that is, uh, but it sounds pretty grim. Uh, One-eighth of the mixture also had to be potato flour, and if that wasn't bad enough, because sugar was in short supply, uh, the amount that you could add uh, was extremely low, so the dough often uh, didn't rise properly. The bread was extremely stodgy. Uh, bakers also weren't allowed to sell the bread hot out of the oven. It had to rest overnight and they weren't allowed to cut it up for you. Um, so it's somehow not that surprising that it didn't need to be rationed during the war. Um, meat, dairy, tea, sugar and sweets uh, were all heavily rationed. Uh, fish actually wasn't rationed, but it was pretty difficult to get hold of it unless you lived near the coast. And other items like tropical fruits simply disappeared. Uh, petrol was extremely tightly rationed. Uh, there were some years where basically there were no, you couldn't get any petrol supply unless you it could prove that you needed it for work. And um, there were also a load of 
petty fog fogging regulations are plenty, such as maximum prices for off-ration restaurant meals, uh, maximum qualities that could be used in cakes, uh, and they really began to irritate the public once the necessities of the war uh, was over. Um, one of another extraordinary surprising things for people living in the 2020s is that tobacco was never rationed. Um, and uh, you, you, you kind of have to laugh, really. Um, opposition to rationing really did start to grow, though, in the late 1940s. People decided that it was, um, it, was, it was starting to get silly. The war had been over for three years. And so you had uh, movements such as the Housewives League that was established uh, as a grass move, uh, grassroots movement uh, campaigning for freer supplies. So the big question is, um, why on earth did rationing go on for so long? I mean, you know, you wouldn't uh, voluntarily do it just for a laugh, um, especially when you know it's very unpopular. And given that the boats could travel unhindered from the US to the UK, surely um, there's really no excuse. Uh, so initially there was a problem because there was a big food shortage in Europe. The scorched earth policies of the collapsing Nazi regime, the fact Germany was occupied and there were a number of other newly liberated countries with their economies in ruins and they needed feeding. So perhaps that covers an excuse for 1945 to 47. But it, things start to become clear that that's really not the main problem. It's, it's the fact that the UK is pretty much bankrupt and um, the UK simply couldn't afford to import food and so that brings us on to the final um, big topic that's going to come up in the 1950 election and that's the big dollar shortage so the UK actually internally despite the fact that it had left the war with a debt of around 200% of GDP 200 although it wasn't measured so 200% of output um, the government was actually pretty solvent internally. It owed the debt to the public, and given that there, there was nothing much for the public to buy anyway in the shops, uh, a very large savings stock had built up, um, most of which were simply lent to the government at artificially low interest rates, and <clears throat> so the government had no problem funding itself. But within a month of coming to power, um, the government was warned by Keynes, by John Maynard Keynes himself, that basically it was externally insolvent and that it faced an economic Dunkirk. Uh, Keynes said that um, the UK could no longer pay her way in the world and unless new forms of loans or aid could be resume, received from the US or Canada, the country would soon be, as he put it, in Queer Street. Queer Street being the uh, term for sort of financial ruin. Uh, the UK had two big problems. Uh, it had produced very few exports during the war, um, so it has had to import things basically by borrowing. And it has sold off most of its overseas assets, which had been held in uh, US and Canadian dollars, in order to pay for the war materials from these countries. From other countries, um, including some of the UK's uh, colonies or Commonwealth partners, the, uh, the, the UK had paid for imports that it had received during the war um, in so-called blocked sterling balances. 
So, for example, say if Argentina had sold um, uh, food to the United Kingdom, uh, they received sterling at the Bank of England, and they were able to uh, use the sterling at the Bank of England to buy uh, other stuff from the United Kingdom, but they weren't allowed to convert it into dollars or any other countries. And so what the consequence of this is, is given that there wasn't very much to buy from the UK, the very large... Uh, sterling balances had accrued at the Bank of England and which was basically a huge FX debt, foreign exchange debt. So looking at what the government did about this, um, initially um, Keynes was sent to the US um, to negotiate a huge dollar loan. The government had a huge source, a shortage of dollars um, because it wasn't exporting anything and it needed to pay for grain and other foodstuffs. And uh, he came back with a huge loan, uh, and then also it's often sometimes forgotten, but an extremely generous loan from the Canadians, uh, both uh, neither of which would bear interest for five years, uh, and neither of which would actually be repaid in full until the 2010s. Uh, the US one, of course, had some strings attached. Uh, the UK was going to make sterling convertible, so freely convertible into dollars. Uh, um, it was agreed that the UK could keep her exchange rate fixed. Uh, but there wouldn't be any, uh, there'd be no more of these heavy exchange controls and blocked balances at the Bank of England. And so the consequence of this was that the Labour government found that it needed to make a very fast adaptation to an export oriented economy. And that was needed to close the trade gap. There'd also have to be heavy controls on imports because otherwise the loan would get spent pretty quickly. And so the Labour Party had to make some choices. What was it going to prioritise for imports? It continued to uh, prioritise tobacco. Um, there was actually some uh, a plea uh, to reduce uh, tobacco consumption somewhat in 1947 and 48, and there was a small, uh, modest increase in tobacco duties. But the government uh, continued to prioritise that. That was uh, considered uh, to be unacceptable to to reduce that. So it was really food and uh, con basically petrol for uh, private uh, private use that were, were, took the brunt of the cuts and controls. And in 1946-47, uh, with the need for the UK uh, to share food with occupied Germany, um, there was even a bread ration for one year, um, although potatoes remained unrationed, and the meat ration uh, uh, reached its lowest level, much lower even in the dark days of 1941 when the UK was being uh, bombed. Things uh, got a little bit better towards the latter end of the 1940s. Um, the UK received a huge amount of martial aid. The President Truman decided that uh, after the communist takeover, particularly in Czechoslovakia in 1948, that the UK, France and Italy, as well as occupied Germany, is going to need huge grants, not just loans, but grants, uh, in order to rebuild their economies quickly maybe so they can buy some US imports, but also, more importantly, to resist the further spread of communism. And uh, contrary to popular belief, it's not actually Germany, but it's actually the United Kingdom that was by far the recipient of this so-called martial aid. If you actually look at the real terms value of the USA 
aid that we um, received between 1946 and 1951. In real terms, uh, the UK is actually the the biggest recipient of U uh, of US aid um, until way into the 1970s, when the amounts that the South Korean and Israelis start, re, had received over decades finally outstripped what we'd received um, basically in five years. But the other consequence of this was what was going to happen when the martial aid ran out. It was made clear that it was going to end in 1952. And so this is another critical area of debate at the 1950 election. You've got rationing and you've got the martial aid. So this is already an extremely long episode, um, longer than I intended. But I do want to talk about, finish off with talking about the currency crisis in 1949. So the UK, um, after the 1930s, fixed its exchange rate. It did it at uh, 403 to the dollar um, in 1940. And you might ask, well, what on earth is special about 403? Um, nothing, really. The government realised that it needed to lock down the currency. And somehow by 1947 to 49, um, the, the rate had survived. Um, but it was becoming less and less credible. Uh, the pro there was so much price increases um, in, in the UK during the war. There were so many people who wanted to get their capital out of the sterling areas. And, and uh, exchange controls were getting less and less credible. And it's quite interesting to look at The Economist, the newspaper The Economist from the 1940s. Uh, the, it's, it's always been a, something of an economic liberal um, newspaper, but it's it, it was quite prescient in that it warned in 1947 to 49 that the uh, things were going to go really wrong for the, the currency. The uh, 19th of April 1949 issue, a few months before the devaluation, said that the complex rules had created, quote, a maze of official and unofficial free rates, an international cobweb in which the most noisome spiders lurk and fatten. Now, I rather like the language there, but actually you can simplify that by saying there were two main tricks uh, to get your money out of the, the UK. If you decided that um, you were uh, desperate enough to, to, to get it out, um, you could do the so-called double smuggle, whereby you just take a load of banknotes out of the country and um, swap them in Zurich, um, the so-called Swiss free rates. And uh, the newspapers were actually published those, and you could see that the pound was really worth where people were willing to smuggle only $3 rather than the 403 by 1949. Um, people were desperate to get their money out. Um, there was also a, a commodity arbitrage, rather unpleasant uh, arbitrage, called cheap sterling, whereby you use uh, commodity arbitrage between the sterling zone and the dollar zone as a method of sneaking capital out of the um, economy. So the initial attempt at uh, convertibility in 1947 quickly failed. A number of people tried to um, take their money out. And so Hugh Dalton had to abandon convertibility very quickly as the UK reserves dropped. The Americans realised that uh, it wasn't going to be practical for the UK to um, to actually go ahead with the what they'd agreed with the loan. And so they were fairly acquiescent of the government reversing policy quickly. However, the government did hope that it would be able to hold on to the exchange rate at 403. Uh, the Labour government had been embarrassed in 1931 with the devaluation, and they didn't want a repeat of that. 
But by 1949, middle of 1949, the government realised that with reserves draining away, there was going to be no um, there was going to be no choice but to devalue. And so, having met with the IMF, the new um, body that was created in the uh, in the post-war era by the Bretton Woods Agreement. Um, Cripps announced a devaluation from 403 against the dollar to $2.80. So it was a move of around 30%. Uh, a load of other currencies went uh, went with sterling, um, with particularly all the, uh, the um, Commonwealth countries in the sterling zone followed the full 30%. The Scandies actually dropped their, theirs over 40%, so they actually went more, and the French franc and the Canadian dollar were only partially devalued. Um, the government uh, was able to announce that since the Canada had actually uh, partially followed, the price of the four and a half pence national loaf would only increase by one penny to five and a half pence, instead of the planned sixpence, and they uh, as if there was some sort of victory. So um, they'd clearly been planning for a worse case than actually happened. Uh, Mos- Moscow Radio mocked the UK uh, naturally. Uh, they said that the Crips uh, should have avoided the need for devaluation if he hadn't spent so much preparing the UK for war. Um, perhaps they hadn't weren't aware that 20% of the UK budget was actually on food subsidies. But anyway, uh, the UK also received a lecture from the IMF and they wanted the government to sharply cut back on spending, presumably on food subsidies. Uh, Churchill uh, piled in, naturally, um, accusing Crips of misleading the public, and the Liberals said that the government had taken the easy way out rather than working to increase UK productivity. Um, Actually, it was considered that Churchill rather missed an open goal uh, with his um, statement in the House of Commons. Uh, People thought he made uh, particularly the Guardian and the press that was fairly uh, keen on the Conservatives thought that he he hadn't done a particularly good job on it. But, of course, uh, opponents of the government quickly uh, piled in and said that um, what Cripps had done wouldn't last. Uh, The Economist uh, noticed that free rates had already dropped from the the new parity of 280 to 242. He said that Cripps had his head in the clouds and he thought that uh, the Economist thought it was particularly laughable that Cripps had asked the press to avoid mentioning the so-called unofficial rates of the Swiss banknote rates. So the final consequence of the uh, devaluation was a short but nonetheless um, deterioration, considerable deterioration in Labour's uh, popularity. There weren't very many opinion polls at the time. The, uh, the There was one poll which was done by the UK BIPO, which was the UK affiliate of Gallup, and they uh, detected a 10% Conservative lead in uh, in October 1949 after the devaluation. Um, that was up from around the 4 to 5% that the Conservatives had been ahead at the beginning of 1949. Now, this didn't last by the year turn. It was back at um, 5%. So the Conservatives weren't able to um, uh, capitalise for very long on the devaluation. But nonetheless, it did have an impact. And the uh, 
the devaluation, the dollar shortage, and the continuing issues about uh, rationing. So, you know, what should be imported? What are the key things that the government needs to uh, to allow uh, people to import? Um, with the dollar shortage as it is, uh, were going to become hot topics in the 1950 election. So uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It was an extremely long episode. Uh, I'm going to move to shorter episodes in the period ahead and have a look at the general election. So hopefully uh, it will be a little bit more snappy. Um, but I do hope this uh, this uh, one has given you an idea of some of the key points that are going to come to play in the 1950 election. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>